traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This week, one of my colleagues makes his debut on this podcast with an astonishing story of a Scottish man who spent more than five years locked away in an Indian prison. Jagtar Johau says that he's been tortured by the police there. He's accused of being a terrorist, of being involved in high-profile murders. But more than five years on, he's still not faced trial, and it's not clear what evidence there is against him, if there is any at all. But really, this is a bigger story about Britain and India, because throughout Jagtar's time in jail, the British government have been almost totally silent. In fact, there are suggestions that their silence isn't the most troubling thing of all, that perhaps they've helped the Indian authorities in their arrest of Jagtar Johal. So let me hand over to Will Brown, our new reporter in the Tortoise Newsroom, to tell you this story of the British man who's been locked up and forgotten. It's the 18th of October, 2017. Jagtar Johal has a wide grin across his face. He's taking his first dance with his new wife in Punjab, India. He's young, 30, dressed in a dark blue suit. She's wearing a red dress covered in gold embroidery. They look happy, glamorous, surrounded by family. He looked like a a prince with what he was wearing. But in a few weeks, this young British man's life will be turned into a living hell. His family will be in hiding, desperately trying to flee India back to the UK. She was just screaming, he's been taken, he's been taken. While the newlyweds are out shopping, 15 plainclothes policemen appear, put a bag over Jagtar Jahal's head and throw him into a car. Jagtar says the torture began immediately, that the police started to electrocute his genitals, threatened to burn him alive and strip the women in his family naked. He says they forced him to sign a blank confession statement saying he was a terrorist. Five years on, Jagtar is still locked away in New Delhi's maximum security prison, waiting for trial. He faces nine charges, including conspiracy to murder, an offence that can carry the death sentence. Court hearings have been scheduled almost 300 times, but he still hasn't stood trial. It's not even clear what the evidence against him is, or if there is any at all. All the while, the British government has been almost silent on his imprisonment. I'm Will Brown. This is Detained in Modi's India, a slow newscast from Tortoise. It's a story of a British man who's been locked up and forgotten. It's a story of brutal repression in Prime Minister Narendra Modi's India and how the British state is unwilling or just not strong enough to stand up for one of its own. I worked in Delhi as a reporter during the early Modi years. I was there the year before Jagtar was arrested. I saw firsthand how the country veered down the road towards Hindu nationalism, an extreme political ideology associated with intolerance of minorities in India and fascism. 
Jagtar's case is linked to all of this, but the details are still shrouded in mystery. I want to understand why. Jagtar Johal seems like any other ordinary man. He was born in Scotland and raised in Dumbarton, a quiet, leafy town on the edge of Glasgow. The only passport he ever owned is British. Three generations of his family all lived in the same house. It's a stone's throw away from one of the oldest castles in the country. Hi, no. Hi, how are you doing? Good, <laughs> Yeah, very well. Sorry for the delay, eh? How's it going? Good, Only his brother speaks to the media. So my name is Gurpreet Singh Johal. I'm the elder brother of Jack Singh Johal. I've got two young children. I'm married. I'm a solicitor by profession and also a counsellor for the Labour Party as of May 2022. Gurpreet Johal is one year older than Jagtar, now 36. We sat down in his front room. It's bare, apart from a few family photos of his sons, a religious calendar, and an ornamental clock adorned with an image of a Sikh martyr. The iconography is important for the family. Even though the clock is broken, they won't throw it away. Gurpreet is a big man with a flowing beard and a blue turban. Jack Tarr was strong, very strong. He was very determined. He's full of love for his little brother. He says Jack Tarr is smart, good with computers and speaks excellent Punjabi. He was always there for the family in times of need, like when he financed Gurpreet's law degree. I didn't have the money to do the, the actual course, so Jaktor paid for that element. So without it, I could not go on to do my training to become qualified. And the funniest thing about this is he'd saved most of this money from Pokemon cards. Because during that period, Pokemon cards used to be ones that you would trade and there were some Pokemon cards that were worth 150, 200 and even 300 pounds. So, so you paid for your your diploma, your yes. law diploma yeah. with Pokemon cards? Well, he had used money from Pokemon cards, uh, so yeah. Incredible. Jagtar worked at the family-run takeaway and was a constant presence around the home. The family kept close ties to India, and every holiday they would try and go back to Punjab, a predominantly Sikh region on the India-Pakistan border. While we're talking, I keep wondering, how did someone from this peaceful home on the edge of a Scottish lock end up abducted by masked policemen in India? Then, a link emerges. After work at the takeaway, Jagtar started pouring away at something in his room. Yeah, I'd say he was... Seven, eight years he's been writing about blogging. Uh, I only found out in 2015 that he was doing it. I didn't know that he was doing it because he was doing his work. He didn't want people to know about it. So I only found out in 2015 when he had presented a martyr's son, a photograph of his father. The family say Jagtar was blogging about human rights abuses against a Sikh minority in India. From what Gurpreet says, it seems that Jagtar was writing about a key moment in modern Indian history, a moment which mobilised a Sikh separatist movement in the Punjab region. After Prime Minister Indira Gandhi sent troops into the Golden Temple in 1984, she was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards. This led to deadly anti-Sikh riots across the country, where thousands were brutally murdered. What Jagtar was doing, according to Gurpreet, was translating accounts of these killings from Punjabi to English. But something doesn't stack up. 
Jagtar and Gupret lived in the same house all their life. Why would Jagtar hide something he was so passionate about for years? When I asked to see the blog, Gurpreet says it's been taken down. It's not clear why or by who. Otherwise, the brothers seem to tell each other everything. When Gurpreet got married, his wife moved into the family house. My wife would always joke with Jagtar and say, Jagtar, please get married so your wife could come and then she's got someone to go shopping with, go and do the other family things with. For a long time, Jagtar insisted he couldn't while he was still worked in a takeaway. He thought it just wouldn't be proper. But Gurpur and his wife were persistent and arranged a meeting with a potential wife and her family in Punjab. I took the step forward and started asking him and pushing things a little and say, look, at least go and see who the person is, see how she is. If you don't like her, fine. If she doesn't like you, fine, we continue, but start the process. Eventually, push come to shove, they decided to meet. Something clicked when they met in India. And then they took a liking to each other. So this was April 2017 that we all travelled to India. So I'd like to know, when Jagdar had come away from this first meeting with his soon-to-be wife, what was the first thing he said to you? He, he didn't say anything, because I said, how did it go? He just, he said, look, he just... Kept it bland. He didn't say anything. He was smiling, but he just kept it bland. But it became a bit clear that he wanted to get to know her because he extended his ticket. Within six months, the couple were getting married. And on the 14th of October 2017, Jagtar flew back out to India for the wedding. Sikh weddings are no small thing. Often, the ceremonies will be spread out over several days with men drinking whiskey long into the night. So he'd bought his own, it was a Sherwani. It was a it was a blue coloured dress, so it's like he looked like a, a prince. He had the turban, he suited the beard, so he looked spot on. He got ready as he always does late. <laughs> he woke up at the last minutes to do it and had his extra five minutes sleep because that's just who he is. I still recall because my two boys had tied turbans, so my older one tied a turban. And Ajakta kept saying, look how cute he looks, look how good he looks. He was, he was excited. He had everything in place. Everything was ready the way it's supposed to be. After the wedding, the rest of the family returned home to Scotland. Jagtar stayed out in India just for a bit longer. His new wife was an Indian citizen and needed a bit of time to get her UK visa processed. So the 4th of November, I recall, because I was in bed when Jagtar's wife phoned, it was around about half ten, so about 10.20am on the 4th of November, that Jack's wife's phoned, hysterical, just crying. They've taken him, they've taken him, trying to find out who's taken him, what's happened. And she's like, they're taking him, they've taken him. No one can work out what happened or where Jagtar is. So I've immediately then got up, and my wife's got up and said, what's going on, what's going on? So they've all woke up, came downstairs and, like, what's happened? We didn't know. We genuinely didn't know what happened. I phoned the Foreign Commonwealth Office, it was called at the time. That's the first thing I could think of. And my call to them was, I think my brother's been kidnapped, he's just been married. People may think he's got some money and, as a result, I think this is what's happened. Gurpreet tries to keep things together, but... Jack's wife kept saying, please just come to India, please come. 
Within a day, he and another brother are on a plane to India via Amsterdam. When they get to Delhi, they drive to Punjab through the night. Everything begins to spin out of control. And then we watch the news on the 7th and we see the chief minister of Punjab with the highest rank police officer in Punjab or having an open press conference and Jackdaw's name all over. The chief minister of Punjab has said, we've arrested individuals who have been involved in high-scale murders. At this point, we were like, what are they talking about? A family in UK, everyone found out and they said, get out of there. Just get out. So, this seemingly ordinary guy from a small town in Scotland, running an Indian takeaway, is now arrested in connection with multiple murders. He's accused of being some sort of terrorist mastermind in a country he's only visited a few times. Back home in Dumbarton, the family say the Indian police kept calling their landline in Scotland, threatening them. No one knows how they got the number. Gerprit decides he has to escape the country before anything worse happens, and to his relief... He's allowed through airport security and onto a plane back home. Whilst my wife was happy that I'd came back, I cried to sleep that night. Uh, I'm not ashamed of it, I'm a grown man, because I left my younger brother and left him in India without actually even seeing him. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Exit polls show Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his party, the BJP, are on track to dominate India for another five years. As their prime ministerial candidate for the 2014 Lok Sabha polls, will this gamble pay off for the party? Can Mr. Modi On the face of it, this all seems a bit mad. But if we set Jagtar's arrest against the backdrop of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's extraordinary rise to power, it begins to make sense. In 2014, Modi and his Bharatiya Janata Party, or the BJP, swept to power in a landslide. 
The old secular Indian National Congress Party, hollowed out by years of corruption, was swept aside. When I was there in 2016, many young Hindus I knew were hopeful. They felt that Modi would finally pull India up by its bootstraps and turn their country into a great power on the world stage. But you could feel this growing anger, a violence simmering just below the surface. One day, I walked around a corner in Old Delhi and saw a mob attacking a young Dalit woman. Dalits are the lowest of the low in the Hindu caste system. They are often seen as an impurity to be exploited or purged by the higher castes. The crowd of men knocked her to the ground again and again, crying out, Hindustan, Hindustan. The image of the group and my own powerlessness to do anything about it are still etched on my mind. That same chant of Hindustan, which means land of the Hindus, shot right through Indian society. The RSS, the Hindu paramilitary group, which was inspired by the fascists and Nazis, was also on the rise. A senior founding member wrote about how he was inspired by Nazi Germany, which displayed, quote, race pride at its highest and was a good lesson for use in India. Modi was part of the RSS as a young man, and the BJP has strong links to the organisation. You could see the RSS growing ever more powerful, slowly infiltrating or intimidating almost every institution into submission. Attacks on minorities started to increase. Jagtar's case is part and parcel of this story, a democracy of 1.4 billion people lurching down the road towards authoritarianism. Since then, things have only got worse. And so things feel very fragile, especially because the polarization along religious lines and the constant persecution of religious minorities is simply blatantly unconstitutional in the Indian case. This is Mukalika Banerjee, a professor at the London School of Economics and author of Cultivating Democracy. And so if this continues, um, you can see that the promise that India itself had made to itself about the kind of democratic nation it was going to be, uh, it is failing that record. So it's not, it's judging it by its own standards. Um, It is a deeply worrying state of affairs. Every day, practically, you open social media and you see not just Muslims being lynched, Dalits being beaten, women being raped, but these acts of violence filmed and circulated over and over again. The media create hysterical debates around this in in the evening news. And it further polarizes. The police look away, the media draw attention to it. No institution has escaped the BJP's drive for power. One tried and tested tactic to suppress criticism is tax raids, where inspectors raid offices as a way of intimidating opponents. A calm news day disrupted when dozens of Indian income tax officials descended on the BBC offices. The BBC's operation in India looks to be paying the price for a documentary it showed here, criticising Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Last month, the BBC offices in Delhi were targeted by tax officials after it aired a two-part documentary examining Modi's alleged role in anti-Muslim pogroms in Gujarat state in 2002. Even though the documentary was only aired in the UK, it seems to have been a line too far for Modi's loyalists. But more than anything, this shows the extreme lengths the BJP is willing to go to to enforce its narrative. If they feel they can go after the largest broadcasting company in the world, 
going after a working-class man from Dumbarton is easy pickings. While the family were trying to get him out, Jagtar is in an appalling situation, unable to see his new wife, older brother, or British diplomats. But he does eventually manage to get a handwritten letter out through his lawyer about what's happened to him in those first few days. On the evening of 5th of November, I was stripped and beaten. I was given electric shocks and legs were pulled apart numerous times. Electric shocks were administered by placing the crocodile clips on my earlobes, nipples and private parts. Multiple shocks were given each day. We cannot confirm any of the details because British consular staff were not allowed to see him and requests for medical examinations were denied. But this is what happened, read out by Gerprit in Jagtar's own words. Each time the act of pulling my legs would take place, the pain would increase. At some stages, I was left unable to walk and had to be carried out of the interrogation room. Since then, I have had problems urinating. My family members were also threatened to receive the same treatment. Threats of taking me to a remote location where I would be shot dead were also given. At one point, petrol was brought into the room and I was threatened with being burnt. The police forced me to make recordings in which I had to narrate according to what they were telling me to say. Blank papers were also forcibly signed from me and other documents also which I was not allowed to read. When you're reading that letter back, even five years on, how does it make you feel? You probably see my eyes have watered again. This is probably the third occasion. I'm shocked. I'm looking at it. The element of Jackter saying he was having problems urinating. No one deserves to be subjected to that. It doesn't matter what you're accused of or what you're convicted of. So it's still that shock that actually happened. A central part of the accusations against Jagtar is that he's a member of a group called the Khalistan Liberation Force. The KLF are a Sikh separatist movement who want to create a Sikh homeland in the wider Punjab region. They were prescribed as a terrorist group in India after Jagtar was imprisoned. They've never been prescribed in the UK. His family completely denies all of this. They say after years of Jagdar being in prison, prosecutors have still not produced a shred of solid evidence against him, apart from a statement they claim was gained through torture. My name is Ashok Soyan. I'm a professor of peace and conflict research at Uppsala University, Sweden. Ashok is a severe critic of Modi and the opposition, but his work has cost him dearly. He's barred from returning home to India and receives regular death threats. He says that as the Hindu diaspora has been mobilised by Hindu nationalist ideology, the Sikh diaspora has also become more extreme in their views. Now what has happened, there is a new, not Congress, nor BJP, there is an AAP party which has come into power in Punjab. They have also been supported to a large extent by the Sikh diaspora in their election in India. 
So I think it is it, somehow there is a, the problem in Punjab is extremely sensitive and critical in that sense that uh, the, the way the Khalistan movement was much more limited to the diaspora, it has now seems to be going into the Punjab itself. The Indian government alleges that Jagtar was part of one of these groups campaigning for independence, the KLF, describing it as an almost existential threat to the Indian state. So I'm Sushant Singh. I'm a senior fellow at Centre for Policy Research in India and a visiting lecturer at Yale University. He dismisses any suggestion that the KLF is a threat to India's national security. I believe on the ground, they are very, very small, very insignificant. They, they command no presence on the ground. As you know, they are democratic, democratically elected governments in the Indian state of Punjab, uh, where the majority of Sikhs live. And uh, uh, th- these organizations command no support at all there. There is, ju- they, there is just no support for these organizations. Uh, so to emphasize the Khalistani threat as a major threat or as a primary threat to, Indian, uh, to India's integrity or India's sovereignty would be absolutely, absolutely incorrect. There is just no Khalistan movement worth its name to be to be spoken of. Instead, it seems the BJP is using the idea of these movements as a sort of shadow puppet enemy, a spectre of well-organised Sikh terrorists funded by Delhi's sworn enemies in Pakistan to be blown out of all meaningful proportion, entrenching Modi's appeal to Hindu nationalists. Like all authoritarian, majoritarian governments, the current government in India wants to somehow show that it is under attack, both internally as well as externally. So, you know, movements like the Khalistan movement can always be shown as these kind of great enemies who are trying to attack the Indian state because this is the government in place and the government needs all kinds of authoritarian measures to keep these forces at bay. This is something which can be easily played and it's a narrative which is very difficult to counter for any civil society organization, for any lawyer, or for any people who believe in in human rights and the other liberal values in this country. Regardless, it's evident that Jagdar was writing about a sensitive point in Indian history and a highly charged political topic in Modi's eyes. But it seems hard to believe that a man would be arrested off the back of a few blog posts alone. And why has the UK not done more to help him? Is there something more to Jagtar's story? Supposedly, the day of Jagtar's arrest in November 2017, he was out shopping when 15 men took him away. By this point, he had been in India for more than a month and had been married for almost two weeks. So the timing was odd. One of the most striking things about the day of Jagtar's arrest does not come from one of the first-hand accounts. Instead, it comes from a report published more than two years later. In 2020, the UK's Investigatory Powers Commissioner's Office, a sort of watchdog for spooks, published a delayed annual review. On page 62, there's a case study. It's just a few lines and a text box with all the details anonymized. In the course of an investigation, MI5 passed intelligence to a liaison partner via secret intelligence service. The subject of the intelligence was arrested by the liaison partner in their country. The individual told the British consulate official that he had been tortured. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office led the response to this allegation and lobbied for further access to the detainee. The FCO continued to regularly access the individual throughout his detention. These lines are the key to understanding Jagtar's case. Human rights activists from the NGO Reprieve spotted it. They trawled through case files, eliminating different potential candidates. 
trying to work out who this might be. Eventually, they came to a conclusion. The only possible British citizen who fit the description was Jagtar. In other words, they believe that MI5 and MI6, Britain's domestic and foreign intelligence services, tipped off their counterparts in India about the fact that Jagtar was in the country for his own wedding. Reports in the Indian press, based on Indian police briefings at the time of Jagtar's arrest, back this up. They say the information on Jagtar's whereabouts came from UK sources. Government departments, the intelligence services, and members of the key intelligence and security committee in Parliament have all refused to comment on the link to us. The only statement we were given was from the Foreign Office. Mr Johal's allegations against the UK government are the subject of ongoing court proceedings, and as such, it would not be appropriate to comment. But there is clearly something behind the veil of secrecy. Lee Day, a law firm specialising in human rights, has filed a claim against the government for its handling of Jagtar's case. They want a court apology and allege an intelligence tip-off was made in the knowledge that Jagtar might be tortured after their arrest. Now, the Foreign Office has filed something called a Section 6. Basically, they've asked for all these claims to be examined in a secret court for national security reasons, meaning neither Jagtar's lawyers nor his family will have a clue what happens behind closed doors. This matters. Firstly, because if the British intelligence services had reason to suspect Jagtar, why did they not just arrest him themselves? And secondly, it matters because what Jagtar says happened after his arrest is horrifying and predictable. If the reports about British intelligence services' involvement are true, it means they knowingly helped a British citizen be detained in a country where he was at risk of torture. Jagtar's case fits into a general pattern we can see emerging, a closeness between the Conservative Party and the BJP. Here's Professor Mukalika Banerjee. Over the last eight or nine years since the BJP has been in power and simultaneously the Conservatives have been in power in Britain and Trump was in power in, in the US, we have seen a greater assimilation of these linkages between the governments and not simply between the diaspora, but the political parties, the Republicans in America, the Conservatives in Britain, who've had very direct links to election campaigns. So British MPs campaign for the BJP. They tell their uh, constituents in Britain to advise their families in India to vote for BJP. Um, there is polarization of electorates, you know, it's sort of old colonial trope of divide and rule that was used in British India is now used among South Asian, uh, British South Asians in Britain. This cozying up to Modi's BJP, set against the backdrop of trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with India, raises alarm bells. Because the UK's fingerprints are on Jagtar's arrest, and its inaction since has been striking. It has been remarkable, to me at least, how feeble the government's efforts to deal with this situation have been. It's really interesting to me because I think you see that India's in control here. Now, if you look at it, you know, in a kind of post-colonial era, that is very interesting to see that, you know, the shoes on the other foot, etc. The difficulty is in the modern era, to me, post-Brexit, is that the UK is looking for a trade deal with the Indian Republic. Martin Doherty Hughes is Jagtar's MP. But that doesn't mean that you sell your soul to the devil. And Narendra Modi and the BJP 
are a very difficult, reactionary, um, xenophobic, nationalistic organisation and political movement, which I think this, this present British government doesn't know how to deal with. And, and if they do know how to deal with it, they're going about it the completely wrong way. And it also questions where the wealth of knowledge that may have been in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office at some point no longer seems to be there. And that is because of the brain drain after Brexit. Meanwhile, it's been more than five years since Gerprit last saw Jagtar. And apart from the odd newspaper article, it largely seems that Jagtar's case has been forgotten. Not by his family, not by his MP, but by the press and the country at large. But his case raises many issues for any British citizen. How could the UK government sit by as he is held so long without trial by key ally? It is revealing, after all, of what we as a society choose to recognise and value. And more than that, it exposes the fragility of our own democratic strength in a post-Brexit world. There are a range of complex issues. But at the end of the day, my constituent requires either a fair trial, which, you know, as I said, they've crossed the Rubicon and that's not going to happen. So he needs to come home. But then we also have the issue around arbitrary detention and the fact that the British government is ignoring, you know, the defined decision of the United Nations Working Group on arbitrary detention. It, it, it just shows you, I think, the strength of the Indian position in terms of saying to the British, you know, you want a trade deal, you want to do trade, shut up. That's as easy. To me, it's as straightforward in many ways as that. You know, you'll have ministers going over, they might mention it, but they'll mention it nudge, nudge, wink, wink in private. They'll have probably mentioned, says, oh, need to mention this. And that's, say, that's kind of parked. And then let's just talk about trade. You know. So I'm afraid it, it, it doesn't sound great. I, I have concerns that we may be at this for some time yet. Uh, and that's the situation that worries me, because that certainly does play into the hands of Nindra Modi and his control of the Indian system of government. And it does throw major questions around the independence of the Indian judiciary and, you know, our asking questions around, our lack of ability to ask questions around human rights with so-called close allies. As for Jagtar, well he's still waiting for an opportunity to answer the charges laid against him by the Indian government. I think he'll be waiting for some time. What message would you send to Jagtar right now? I'm sorry I've not got you back home earlier. I don't know what else I can do to bring him back, but the power lies within the UK government. It's scary because people forget This could be them. This could be one of their loved ones if this is happening to one British national. And I think the UK government really need to show a backbone. Do you still have hope? When you say hope, until I'm breathing, that hope's going to stay. Because I know I won't stop. This episode was reported by me, Will Brown, the producers were Matt Russell and Gary Marshall. Sound design by Sam Mbatha. And the editor was Basha Cummings. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. If you like what we do and enjoy our podcast, then please do leave us a review or follow us. And to access more of our journalism and invites to exclusive events, join Tortoise as a member. Visit tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code SLOW60 for a special offer today. Tortoise. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.